This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. today, if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be uh, reading there in, in, in just a, a couple of moments. Um, if you missed one or both of the previous lessons, it might be helpful for you to go back and listen to the podcast, not because they're great messages, but they do give the foundation for what we're trying to build on each week. Um, so far in our study of following Jesus, we've made a few basic discoveries. One is that being a sinner is a prerequisite to following Jesus. So if you're one of those that just happens to believe that you've always been good and you struggle putting yourself in the category of, of, of a bad sinner, then you're probably not a candidate to follow Jesus simply because that means that you are trying to rely on your good works instead of Christ's redemptive work on the cross which uh, also means that when it comes to eternity, you're on your own, bud. And good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you. Secondly, we also learn that you can begin to follow Jesus even if you have some doubts. Nobody in the first century initially believed Jesus was the Son of God. That came later on. In fact, some people didn't fully believe He was the Savior of the world until after the resurrection. So if you have some doubts about the Bible, that's okay. You know, if you have some doubts about Christianity, Jesus still invites you to follow him because as you follow him, here's what's going to happen. You will begin to see who Jesus really is. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And he came to save you from your sins. And he will reveal that to you as you study the word, as you pray. He just wants you to follow him. One more thing we learned is that Jesus' invitation to you is not change and then you can join us rather it's join us 
and then you will change. You know, as that old invitation hymn says, just as I am. And, and at this church, we want you to know that we welcome sinners. We welcome scoundrels. We welcome you as you are. Because we know that as you begin to follow Jesus, you will change. Your language will change. Your desires will change. Uh, your addictions will change. Your attitudes, your priorities will change and begin to reflect the values of Jesus Christ. That's enough review. We have a ton to cover today. With God's help, I want to try to narrow our focus and answer a very, very specific question. Uh, and, and, and here's the question. What's, if you surrender your life to Christ and you follow Him, what's the reward? What's the payoff? Um, I, I know, and I know some of you are thinking, duh, that's easy, Joe. The payoff of following Jesus is that you get to go to heaven. And that's true. The Bible is very clear that heaven is a real place that is reserved for real followers of Jesus. Thank God for the hope of heaven. Amen? However, when you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't put a huge emphasis on this. You don't find Jesus continually saying, hey, follow me so you can go to heaven. You know, he did tell the criminal on the cross that this day he would be with him in paradise. But as a whole, Jesus' invitation to follow him was not primarily attached to the concept of going to heaven. Secondly, we discover in the Gospels that if you follow Jesus, the payoff is not that you will just become a better person, even though you will. Followers of Jesus forgive more quickly. They're more generous. They're more loving. So yes, one of the benefits of following Jesus is that you'll be a better person. But again, you don't find Jesus going around saying, follow me and I'll make you a better father. I'll make you a better husband or uh, a better mother, whatever, better students, a better student. You don't find Jesus primarily saying that. A couple of other things. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the Gospels. They document the life of Christ. You will also find out that following Jesus didn't include the concept of follow this formula and you will be pain-free, problem-free, worry-free, and have health, wealth, and prosperity. Which, by the way, unfortunately, today is being mixed in with Christianity. And let me camp here just a moment. I, I, I think a lot of us, without being aware of it, have gravitated towards spiritual formulas. For example, we think, you know, if you will just pray this prayer, or if you will just touch your cross three times a day, or if you will repeat these words or memorize this saying, then God will bless you. You know, if someone says something similar to you, know that that kind of stuff is not from God. Uh, in fact, that kind of stuff is based on luck or coincidence. And here's the truth. Luck or coincidence, because of the law of averages, works some of the time. You know, here's a, here's a perfect illustration of this. After a wedding, there's always the tradition of throwing the throwing of the bouquet. And supposedly, whatever young lady catches it will be the next to get married. Well, one week ago, yesterday, one of our beautiful young ladies in this church was at a wedding and they threw the bouquet and she was the lucky girl to catch it. Well, would you believe that within 24 hours she had been proposed to and she accepted the proposal to marry this young, good-looking hunk of a man? 
And so therefore, Chad and Chelsea will be married within a few weeks. Now, yeah, they're not here. I, you guys aren't here, are you? You'll, you'll be here in the, in the second service. Um, now, now, there are some people that are really into this kind of stuff. And, uh, and they would say, yeah, this stuff really works. You catch the bouquet, you will be married soon. But most of us know that was, I'm sorry, but it was just coincidence or luck. The law of averages causes certain things to happen from time to time. So, so whether it's catching the bouquet or a good luck charm or crossing your fingers or wearing the little cross around your neck or whatever formula you use, luck or coincidence, because of the law of averages will work some of the time. And unfortunately, some of us were raised in a Christian environment where luck got mixed in with our belief system. And we began to think, began to think that doing things in a certain way guaranteed God's blessing. Just kind of a story from my life. I, I got caught up in this some years ago. You know, I, when I went through Bible college, I, I took several years of homiletics, which is basically the art of preaching. And I know you think, boy, you must have flunked it. And it didn't work, and, and, and I agree, but you should have heard me before. <laughs> but as I got into ministry, I tried to integrate some of the things I'd learned, and, and so I developed a routine, and, 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 and I came up with a routine for preparing my sermons, and, and I would study the Scripture, and then many times I would look into the original Greek or, or Hebrew text, and I took three years of of, of Greek in, in, in Bible school, and, and it's still Greek to me. But anyway, I, I, I did study. Um, and then I would try to find out the historical and the cultural context. And, and sometimes I would look at it in other translations of the Bible and look at commentaries. And then, of course, I would pray over it. And then early in my ministry, I added to that routine the practice of fasting on a weekly basis. And, and I, I never talk about it because it's not something that I need to advertise. But the, the, the reason that I mention this and, and all of these other things is that at one point I began to feel that I had come up with the perfect formula that would guarantee God's blessings. You know, if I did due diligence and, and I studied hard and I prayed hard and I fasted hard, then that formula would bring God's blessings and he would help me to really hit it out of the park that next Sunday and his presence would be there in a special way and people would come to know Christ. I thought I had the formula for that. And thank God there were those times when he blessed. But, but then I began to notice that my formula didn't always work. Even after those weeks where I'd studied and prayed and fasted, instead of feeling that I'd hit a home run, I felt I'd served up a dud of a sermon. And instead of it being one of those amazing and free services, man, the spiritual atmosphere was so cold. As they say, it was almost like you could hang meat. And I began to question, God, what happened? I mean, I've got my formula. I, I studied hard. I prayed. I fasted. I did everything on the formula. And I didn't even get a single today. I struck out. And finally, it was like God began to help me realize that even though I needed to pray, I needed to study, I needed to fast, yet those things were not a magic and lucky formula that would always bring the blessing. I be began to realize that it's not about a formula. It's not about a routine. It's not about what I did, even though I need to apply myself. Rather, it's about what God did. And if we're not careful, we begin to fall prey to this kind of stuff all of the time. And, and we begin to think, okay, 
if we attend church, if we tithe, if we read our Bibles, if we pray, then God has to bless us. And this attitude even extends into other areas of our life. We begin to think, okay, you know, last time I wore this outfit, the Chiefs won, and so I'm going to keep on wearing it. Or the last time I did this, I had great success during deer season. (laughs) Or we even begin to think, you know, I found that when I read my Bible, then my day goes well. How many times have I heard you say that? Or if I go to church, I feel better. And these things are good and necessary. But they should not be looked at as as part of a magic formula to make us feel better. You know, these formulas even extend into situations like this. Someone will say, well, okay, if you're looking for a job, let me tell you how to find a job. And on Monday morning when you wake up, put on whatever you want to wear to the job that you want and stand in front of your front door with your Bible and open it. Wherever it falls, open, read it, and there will be a promise for you. You know, I guarantee that if I made that promise... To you, within a couple of weeks, I would get an email from someone who would say, Pastor, this stuff really works. And then if I would read you that email, then more people would try it, which would generate more emails that it worked. And I could write a book and be rich and famous and be done with my one-day-a-week job of pastoring. (laughs) Because that's how luck or coincidence works. And luck works some of the time because of the law of averages. You know, I, I don't want to take much longer here, but I, I feel like we need a lesson in this. And one of my favorite examples of a good luck charm is is this little guy right here. Um, and and if you know what this is, you better not admit it because I'm going to make fun of you. Um, this happens to be Saint Joseph the Carpenter, and 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 I, I read something about this guy, and and so I did a little bit of research where I could find him, and. And I found out that you can buy this guy on on um, on Amazon. Go go ahead and go to that slide there. Uh, that's the guy. Five dollars and forty cents on Amazon, and it's got Prime shipping. And so I got it within two days. And uh, it's got uh, you know it's got a little prayer card and it's got some instructions. And l- let me just uh, without taking too much time, could I just read the instructions that that came with this little guy? Um, St. Joseph was Jesus' father here on earth. He was loving father, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so it goes on and says that he, he became known for helping with houses, how, with, with house sales. And so to sell your house and move, praying to St. Joseph is one of the things that many families do in preparation for putting their house up for sale. That's this little guy. Here are the simple steps to follow. And, and uh, by the way, any real estate agent, you might want to consider getting a case of these. Um, Here are the simple steps to bury St. Joseph. Number one, pray to St. Joseph for his assistance to sell your house. Number two, dig a hole close to the for sale sign for your home. Number three, I'm not lying to you, okay? This is what I got from Amazon. Number three, place the small statue of St. Joseph in a reclosable plastic bag to protect from water and dirt. Number five, place the statue in the hole feet up facing your home. Number six, cover the statue. Number seven, continue to pray to St. Joseph daily until your home sells. Number eight, after the sale, dig up the statue and give it a special place in your new home. And here's the last part. Spread the word to help other sellers as well. That's the key part. 
And you know what? I was reading some of the questions and reviews on this thing. This is nuts. I mean, you can go to Amazon and uh, here's, here's a testimonial. You know, we all like testimonies because that makes it legit, right? I was so frustrated with, with selling my first flip. I spoke with a friend from work. She told me about St. Joseph's statue. I was homesick with stomach issues, and thanks for sharing that. And had, had learned that, that the new couple did not qualify, and of course this did not help my belly woes. And, and my St. Joseph statue arrived on Saturday, uh, December 10th. I said the prayer without burying it because of my stomach, and, and we had a snowstorm. I was picking up my prescription, et cetera, et cetera. When I received that offer, I'm still in shock. So incredibly grateful to God, my friend Linda, who recommended my St. Joseph statue and my faith. I'm not exaggerating. It works. Here's another one. I had my house on the market for 10 months and it didn't sell. It's in a remote place, etc. And And so I ended up buying this and, and uh, I buried the statue in the front flower bed and said the prayer. I had a buyer within a week. Thanks, St. Joseph. I've got more testimonials here, but we, we don't need to go through any more of that that's that that's enough uh now now here's the truth about this guy the only thing we know about joseph from the very limited limited information we have about him in the gospels is that he was jesus earthly father he was a carpenter and then he vanishes from history that's it yet he has become this saint that people pray to that supposedly helps houses to sell, provided he's buried upside down facing the house. You know, similar thing in, in South America. And I, I know I'm spending way too much time here, but in South America, they, they've got this uh, belief that if you will take the, the fetus of a llama and bury it in the corner, then you will have God's blessings on your house and your home. Well, if you're into this kind of stuff, let me say that Jesus did not come to be your lucky genie. And, and whenever you see people weave scripture into lucky charms and formulas and potions and, you know, okay, knock yourself out. But, but this has nothing to do with following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, pain-free, problem-free, worry-free, temptation-free, peace and love and prosperity and formulas, all of this gobbledygook is not a promise from Jesus. If that's what's being told to you, that's not from the Bible. But there is a payoff to following Jesus. And, and I want to study about that payoff in Scripture. And, and the Scripture we will refer to as one that took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, just for some information here, Jesus had three groups of people that followed him. The first group were the locals in the town. So when Jesus would appear in the town, the locals would come out of the woodwork and they would follow him around. But when he left the town, they would go back home. The second group that followed Jesus, they were the people that, that, uh, that, that kind of followed him, uh, you know, to, to places that were within a, a reasonable traveling distance. And people like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, but not his inner core. And, you know, we kind of see that happening today. And I kind of get amused at the followers of the Collingsworth family. We had them here. We love them. And, and, and they're an amazing family. But, you know, this last concert, there was a lady that showed up from Wisconsin and she had brought 25 pounds of cheese for the Collingsworths. And, and, and so wherever they had a concert that was within about 500 miles, uh, 500 mile radius, they would, they would go. Well, then the third group of followers of, of Jesus were his inner circle and the, the disciples, the apostles. And, and it was very common in that day for a rabbi or a teacher to have an inner circle of handpicked people. Well, after Jesus handpicked his 12 disciples he sat them down and said now that you're part of my leadership team we need to have a time of orientation and so he said here it is Uh, i'm just going to let you know that uh, i'm going to send you out with the same message that i have 
Plus, I'm going to empower you to do some of the same things I'm doing. And, and he basically coached them on where to go and how long to stay and how much money to take and how many chains of clothes to take. And, and you know, here's what to do if this happens. And, and here's what to do if that happens. And, and while he's giving these instructions, Matthew's writing it down. And John is writing it down. You know, so far, so good. But then all of a sudden, Jesus throws them a curve and, and he surprises them with what I'm going to read. And this, and in this little section from the book of Matthew, we discover part of the payoff and the place that our heavenly father wants to take us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Interesting. And the next statement probably causes the disciples to say, whoa, sounds like maybe there's going to be a little bit of conflict on the horizon. Verse 17, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Now, let me read between the lines here. Maybe Matthew is feverishly writing this down and, and possibly when Jesus says you're going to be flogged, maybe Matthew just throws the quill down. He says, time out, master. What are you saying? And the reason he couldn't comprehend this is because Jesus at this point was at the height of his popularity. And, and by virtue of these disciples being part of Jesus' leadership team, the disciples got on that popularity, in on that popularity as well. And, and things were going great. And, and I can just imagine that, that, that the crowd, they were trying to get to Jesus. They couldn't get to Jesus. So they were handing notes to the disciples to give to the master. And these guys felt pretty important. But here Jesus says, um, things are going to change. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. Which is a big deal because people many times died from flogging. If they didn't die, it certainly left a permanent mark that would always let people know that they had done something really bad. You know, I'm sure nobody in this church would ever get a speeding ticket. Isn't that right, uh, Officer Todd? But if you get a speeding ticket... You can pay whatever, I don't know, three, four, five hundred dollars and, and, and plead to a lesser call, a cause, non-moving violation, whatever they do and, and get that ticket expunged from your record so it won't affect your insurance. Well, when you got flogged, you couldn't get the marks expunged. Those marks were there to stay. And, and I mean, every time you went to the beach, uh, they, they would see the marks on your back and it would be like, whoa, dude, you broke the law. I can tell you went through a flogging. You must be a bad person. You must be a criminal. So Jesus says, you will be flogged. But then it gets worse. And notice Jesus doesn't quote that song, something good is going to happen to you. He doesn't give a prophecy where it will all be good. Verse 18, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, not if they arrest you, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. Now, I'm sure they're thinking, at that. okay, Jesus, you didn't tell us this part. I mean, we left our jobs. This was a big step of faith. Uh, we took a cut in pay to be part of your unpaid leadership team. And we were so excited to get on in on this new movement and help you get it off the ground. And, and now you tell us we're going to be arrested and flogged. 
verse 19, at that time you will be given what to say. And check this out, verse 20. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And, and maybe at this point, you know, Matthew and John, they're writing this down feverishly. And, and, and they say, slow, slow down, you're going too fast. I can't write this fast. So, so we're going to be arrested. We're going to be flogged. We're going to be put on trial. And you're saying that in the middle of the trial, God is going to give us the words to say? Question, Jesus. If God, my heavenly father, knows I'm going to be arrested and he knows what I'm, that I'm going to be flogged and is involved enough to give me the right words to say, why doesn't my heavenly father just get me unarrested? Or better yet, why, why doesn't God, my heavenly father, just keep me from being arrested in the first place? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And of course, that's happening today goes on and says children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death that's happening today verse 22 you will be hated by everyone because of me that's happening today and the poor disciples they've got to be thinking huh this is the fine print nobody told us about and you can read the rest of, of, of this account but i've taken all of our time so far to set up the context for one of the payoffs of following jesus He says, here's all the bad things that are going to happen to you. But then here's the payoff. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. We're getting to the heart now of our lesson. Jesus says, do not be afraid. (laughs) Wait, wait, Jesus. We're going to be arrested? Yes. But when you're arrested, do not be afraid. (laughs) Jesus, you said we're going to be beaten and flogged? Yes. But when that happens, do not be afraid. You said we're going to stand trial for our lives and people will turn against us. Yes. In the midst of that, do not be afraid. Continues on, says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus goes on and elaborates in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, can't you buy a couple of worthless sparrows for almost nothing? Goes on and says, yet not, not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And, and this right here, ladies and gentlemen, don't, don't miss this. This is where Jesus wants to take his followers. He wants to take us to a place where our faith in God is so big and it's so strong to where in the midst of our unpleasant circumstances, we will feel so secure in Jesus that we will not be afraid. You see, the message of Jesus was not just go to church and read your Bibles and and get a tattoo of the cross on your arm and, and put a honk if you love Jesus decal on the back of your car. And I won't let bad things happen to you. That's luck. Where God wants to take you. And where God wants to take me is to that place where I wake up every single morning with absolute confidence that despite the harm that may come to my body, Jesus is still the protector of my soul. And I don't have to be afraid. And Jesus said, I'm going to take you to a place not of hocus pocus, not of figure out the formulas and the code to get Jesus to help your house to sell or whatever. He says, I want to take you to a place where your faith in me is so strong that even in the midst of circumstances that should terrify you and scare you half to death, yet you will not be afraid one day in mark chapter 4 jesus decided to test his disciples on this and 
They all got in a boat and headed out across the Sea of Galilee and a storm blew in through the valley and the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. And of course, those of you that have been in the mountains, you know that mountains create their own weather patterns. And so some fierce storms come through there with just almost at a moment's notice. But four of these guys in the boat are fishermen. And so the wind and the waves, not a big deal. They dealt with storms before, so no worries. But this storm that came up was no ordinary squall. Wind was extraordinarily strong. The waves were extraordinarily high. And, and the boat was filling up with water. And what's interesting, during the storm, Jesus was so at peace that he was taking a nap in the boat. These fishermen, they were beside themselves with fear. They awakened Jesus. And even though, you know, the situation is so serious, it's life-threatening, but the text just, just cracks me up. Let me read it for you. Mark chapter 4 verse 37. It says, A furious squall came up and, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I did some research on this Greek word that's translated drown and, and it literally means don't you care if we're going to perish to death. Now, for us we would say we're going to perish or we're going to die. But it was so serious that, that they got a double description of perishing to death. Well, Jesus calms the storm and listen to what he said to them. He said to his disciples, why, why are you so afraid? To which his disciples probably replied, Jesus, I know you were sleeping. But there's a terrible storm here less than a minute ago when the boat was filling up with water. That's why we were afraid. And Jesus was, yeah, uh, was like, yeah, I know there was a storm. I know the boat was filling up with water. I know only four of you can swim or whatever. It wouldn't have mattered because you were too far away from the shore anyway. Jesus said, I, I, I realize we were all about to go under, but why? Why were you so afraid? Do you still not understand that your heavenly father cares deeply about what we consider to be dirty sparrows? And, and if he cares about them, don't you think that you mean more to him than those worthless birds? And then an interesting thing happens. The scripture says that after Jesus calmed the storm, Mark chapter 4, verse 41, they were terrified. They asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, now listen, it appears that their fear of a storm was right here. But their fear of Jesus was way up here. In fact, again, in the Greek text, it's interesting. There's another double descriptive word, and it says, they feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. What does that mean? Well, in that moment, I think they got a glimpse of what it means to trust the one that can, that can control the destiny of the soul. And they began to understand that having their bodies harmed was nothing in comparison to having their souls harmed. And so why didn't Jesus just say, hey, if you'll follow me, I won't let you go through any storms. Or if you follow me, I'll make you a better person. Or if you will follow me, you'll get to go to heaven. Or if you will do this and this. And why didn't he tie this whole thing to some lucky formula where, you know, good things happen to good people that follow Jesus? Why would Jesus tie this to you can go through any circumstances in life and trust me and not be afraid? Why would that be what Jesus emphasizes? Can I just speculate here? This is not, you can't find chapter and verse, but. I wonder if one reason is that that kind of faith, I believe, really honors God. Let me tell you why. 
You know, as a parent, if I overheard one of my children saying, yeah, I I know that's what it appears my dad did, but there's got to be more to the story because I know my dad. I trust my dad. If my children said that about me, I would be so honored. And so I just wonder if when terrible and painful circumstances come our way and and we trust God with big, bold, audacious, out of the box, over the top, nobody can believe a faith to where we're not afraid of things that can only harm the body. I wonder if God doesn't look down with a smile and say, he's my boy. She's my girl. She gets it. He gets it. The one that learned this probably as well as anyone was the Apostle Paul. And writing to the Christians in Rome, and and by the way, Rome was a tough place to be a Christian. You think it's tough in America. It was tough in Rome. But listen to what he writes to the Roman Christians. And and many of you, if you grew up in church, you know this verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the Apostle Paul, who experienced things that I will never experience and you will never experience and And you say, well, what did he experience? We're on that same chapter. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine. And I don't know why he put in there nakedness or danger or sword. And and could I just add my own list? Paul got to put his down. Let me add my own. Joblessness. Prodigal children. Failing health, dishonest bosses, Republicans in the House, Democrats in the Senate, scandals in Hollywood, NFL players who kneel during the anthem. The truth is that some of us here this morning, we are scared to death of what's going on in our country. We're scared to death of what's going on in our lives and our family. But in all of the above, your Savior says, fear not. Fear not. Now, some of you are thinking, Joe, that's the ideal, but I'm not there yet. I'm not either. And the interesting part is that these guys, they were not there either. You know, this wasn't part of the orientation that they wrote down. Say, okay, we got it. What else you got for us? No, that's why Jesus has invited us to follow because following is a journey. It's not something where you arrive and you get it immediately. But as you follow your Savior, your faith will begin to expand. And in the midst of circumstances, you will realize that you don't have to fear that which can harm the body. Rather, fear that which can harm the soul. And so what does that mean for us this next week? Well, it means that we can say with the Apostle Paul, we know all things, all things. Would you say it with me? All things, all things. During the crisis in our country, during incurable health issues, during times of loss of loved ones, during work conflicts, during times of dealing with demanding bosses or annoying co-workers or slacking employees, during those times of wondering how to deal with parenting challenges, during those times of arguments with that ex-spouse during times of loneliness, during times of deep depression, during times of division with our country, during times when North Korea threatens to nuke us, during times when radical terrorist groups pose a real danger. We can say that in all things, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love their Heavenly Father and are called according to His purpose. 
That's the goal. That's where our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, wants to take us to His very heart where we're safe and we trust Him and we know it's okay. Yes, heaven is the goal. Thank God for the hope of heaven. But Jesus chose to emphasize in the Gospels that when you follow me, I want to take you to a place to where you can go through so much junk but you're not going to fear that which harms the body. You're going to fear that which harms the soul. And so this next week, I want to challenge you. Yes, there are dangers out there. Yes, there are circumstances out there. Yes, there are trials and tribulations and problems. There are, there are people that make life difficult. There are what we would call a thorn in the flesh. But yet, no, as we go through all of that, everything we know that Jesus is there with us, we can say, I am not afraid. Oh, Father, I pray that you would take us to your very heart this week. I'll admit, Lord, I've had some fear about some things. Father, I just pray that you would help us. That we would fear the one that can harm the soul. Lord, that we would not fear that which will harm the body. Lord, that we would have such a big faith that so strong, so bold, we would just trust you. God, I want to thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for addressing this issue. And I know we hear this all the time. Do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. But Father, this helps us to understand kind of the rationale. Lord, you love us. And I thank you. And I pray that we would go out of here. Lord, I know what happens. I've, I've been in church all of my life. And I know that when we go out those doors, our mind gets on something else and fear comes back into our life. But I pray that during those times when fear threatens to just overwhelm us, that we would be able to give it to you, that you would bring that peace and calm. So God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the words that you speak to us. Do not fear. We pray this in the name, the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. Thank you for coming. It's late. Um, just rush to Sunday school. Okay, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just go. Thanks for being here. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.